Welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another great day for an interview. I've got Christine Mingming Garner with me. Mingming is a woman who has learned the meaning of the word fear from a very, very early stage onwards and is now living a life that is so beyond any fear that it's no longer no longer funny. So talk about transformations here. And yeah, I'm dead excited to talk to Ming Ming today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be with you, Stefan. Oh, pleasure. Ming Ming, we met on a, a discussion forum about podcasting, so we both were learning the, the ropes there. And we, as part of that, we all sort of put a, a one media sheet together where all our information is on there. And I started reading yours, and I couldn't stop reading. And I, I knew I had to get you onto my show, come hell or high water. And so <laughs> it was. You were very was, persistent, and yeah. I am so grateful. Thank you. <laughs> no, because it is fear is such a fundamental part of our life. And it's an emotion that has kept humanity alive, that has kept us alive when we were about to do stupid things on the cave floor uh, and going out to hunt alone when there are 12 saber-toothed tigers waiting for us. So yeah. no, so fear is good. But nowadays, I think it's time to reframe fear, to look at fear a bit more in depth and learn what its right place is but before Absolutely. we come to the today and to the future where we all want to go both Chris, both Ming Ming and, and me are, are keen to live a, a gorgeous life we need to go back to to the roots uh, tell us a little bit because what made you the master of fear thank you so as a seven-year-old child my mother came home from work one day and said, I just learned about a man who is a prophet of God. And he's saying that anybody who's living on the West Coast, coast, which we were living in Portland, Oregon, there's going to be a massive earthquake and everything is going to collapse into the ocean. We're all going to die. And so if we love our family, we love our kids, we've got to get up and we've got to move ourselves and go. This is the conversation she had with my dad. And I remember as a child thinking, what the heck? Because I had lived a very normal life up until that time. And my dad did not believe, but she was adamant. She said, you know what? There's nothing that you can say to me that will make me believe any different. So she sold our home, which was their dream home. I mean, my parents were refugees from the Vietnam War. Okay, they saved, they scrimped, they saved, they were so frugal. And finally, they bought this house that my mom had been searching for for over a decade. Gorgeous home. We had not even been in it for less, for a year. She put that on the market, sold it in a day because she had, she, she put it at a price that was just irresistible because she didn't care. She didn't care about the money. We were all going to die, right? That was, that was her perception. And so she followed the prophet because she believed that he had a promised land where he could potentially keep us as safe as possible for as long as possible. So we caravanned and we followed the prophet to Southeast Idaho. And there he 
preached and prophesied. He gave us dates on, on when we would die. The first date was August, 1993. August is the month of my birthday. And so he was like, yep, this, it's going to happen around this date in August. And I was like, wow, I might not ever turn eight. This is crazy. Right. And then that date came and went and everybody's looking around like, what, why, why are we still here? This, this is crazy. You know, why is the world still here? Then he'd be like, it's because you followed me so diligently and you prayed so hard and you listened to all my scripture studies and you did everything I told you to do. So God has spared us. God listened to you. So keep going. And so he'd give us another date, you know, another year, year and a half down the road. And, and we're doing everything he's asking us to do. And that date comes and goes. And he says the same thing. We've been so diligent. And literally we, every time I woke up in the morning, I always wondered, is this the day? Is this the day I'm going to die? And so we lived for nothing more than to possibly survive another day. And uh, growing up, they, after all these dates they'd given us, finally, he said, you know what? No more dates. God's not giving us any more dates. He's not, he's not going to um, give me any more information about that. You're just going to need to, to be faithful and follow me. And I remember, um, you know, they're like, came up with all these numbers. Like if you're 15, by the age of 15, if you're still pure, meaning if you're still a virgin, um, you could potentially be translated during the rapture, translated to heaven where you can, where you can be saved from experiencing the torture and the evil on the earth. And so, but they're like that, that would be, that'd be the end of it, you know, for you. Cause if you're going to be translated, it's like you're you're, you're gone, you're away from the earth. And, um, I thought, oh my gosh, wow. They said, well, either you do that. If you're really, you have to be perfect, like live absolute perfect life. Right. And if you make it to that point, congratulations. But if you die before then, which most likely you'll die before then, I mean, you're never going to be able to graduate from high school, college, have a family or a career. So don't ever plan for any of those things. So at the age of 13, they actually pulled me out of public school and they said, your, your education doesn't matter because you're not going to use it anyways. And they kept me in the house. And, and I've realized over time, the reason why they did that, the truth is, it's because my sister and I were such social, I mean, I was such a social butterfly. I was so different when I was outside the cult, when I was around normal people, because I was so happy to just be around normal people that weren't talking about death and fear all the time. And so they knew that I was a threat to their society. So they pulled me out of school and we literally lived in darkness for two years because they had put plywood over our windows because they said at the end of days, evil could come through our windows. So we needed to be prepared. And the only window that was still open in my home was the one that was facing the prophet's house because they didn't allow us to have phones and I would say, you know, if you're going to leave us at home and we don't have a phone, or if there's a fire and they would lock us from the outside, they deadbolt us in from the outside. And we'd say, what about an emergency, like a fire? And they say, well, open up the window and call for the prophet and he'll help you. Interesting. Do, 
strange story, shall I say. And there are multiple, multiple thoughts raising through my mind. They all want to come out right now in my mouth. So I need to be a bit careful because there's so many questions I want to ask you. This prophet, first of all, was he Vietnamese? Was that all more a cultural uh, movement, so to speak? Yes, he was Vietnamese. And is I do not know the Vietnamese culture very well. Is there uh, is there a strong sort of thought of doomsday, or is there a strong strong belief that the world needs to ignite before things can get better? No, I don't believe that it's within the culture to believe that doomsday is coming. Mm-hmm. However. Because my mom was a refugee from the Vietnam War, she she is no stranger to to fleeing from danger. Where she in, had her life. Absolutely. Where in Vietnam uh, was she living? She was living two hours south of Saigon. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, this would have been very very harsh times when she was in her formative years. Uh, the, after all, Vietnam was was in a in more or less a constant state of either civil war or war um, for all of her youth. So to imagine rapture and and devastation, she didn't have to imagine too much. That was part of her life. Um, exactly. So I see how how this prophet could have easily worked on her and worked mm-hmm. on her fears to mm-hmm. actually. Them. Were there many people in this cult? Was that a large community? No, I wouldn't say it's a large community. However, um, I would say at the, the the height, we might have had about 80 to 90 people, but it was kind of an influx of people. Mm. So they would come and then a date would come and it'd go. Mm. And then they would be like, you know what, this is a hoax. Mm. Okay. So early on, people were coming, and then they'd be leaving. And then a couple years later, another couple families would come, and then they would go. But he had told us that he had a large community of people all over the world, that we were just this small pod that he happened to dwell with. Uh, He was a very good liar, wasn't he? A very good manipulator. But these kind of narcissistic... uh, Oh, I've got so many words, but none of them are appropriate for this podcast. Um, can I ask, what were his gains? Was it money? Did he ask for all the money to be transferred to him? Or was it the access to young women? So it was money, because my mom, when she had sold that house, he helped her get back to Portland so that she could access her portion. Like she said it was, you know, she, I understand that she has claimed to, to her 50% of the equity of the home and everything that was in the bank account. So she, see, she said she only took half of what was in that bank account and he flew her back. And from there she used that money. She said it was, it went towards the land. So they had purchased some land, um, a couple hours from where we were living that was just in this forest wooded area. And it was acres of land where they said they would go, we would go and hide once the rapture was getting really close and they, they built underground bunkers. I I don't even know if I can call them a bunker because highly, highly 
unsafe, but they dug these holes and they lined them with, with canned foods so that the dirt wouldn't fall. <laughs> yeah, like pallets of canned foods. And my mom worked day and night every Every weekend she would be gone, but as children, she would never tell us because the prophet told her never to tell us what she was doing. And so she did this for years and it was killing her because she was, she was out in the cold. I mean, it's really cold here in Idaho in the wintertime. She'd be, she'd be working all hours of the night and with all these other people and they're carrying, you know, even 50 pound um, buckets of rice, one on each hand, and they're they're hiking in there. It's it was it was insane. And I, for all these years, I never knew what she was doing until one day she brought home a whole load of all of these canned foods that were rusted. Just you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of rusted food, and and also like these cup of noodles that were completely just ruined. And I was like, mom, where has all this food been? And she finally told me that God had given them a test to see if they would believe in him and do everything that they could to follow him. And so she said, we put it all in these bunkers. But then what happened is after that first winter, the, 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 when the snow melted, it, it ruined everything. And so Anyhow, so all the money went to the prophet so he could buy this land and have them buy all the food. And, and I don't know where else the money went, but a lot of money was pulled into that from oh, many different know. families. And the sad thing is, of course, that there is very much a place for disaster preparedness. Let's not be stupid. This is only because mm -hmm. we, we don't want it to happen. Disaster will happen. Your, your forest fires in, in the West, the cyclones, the hurricanes, you name it. America is being hammered with natural disasters as we speak. So please, of course, you need disaster preparedness, but certainly not by a less than knowledgeable leader who uses the money of his, his disciples to basically make shit decisions. Uh, that, oh, that was brutal. Uh, me. So you were, there was your mom and your dad initially, and you, how old were you? You were seven when you were. Uh, I was you, seven yeah. when my mom moved us there, but my dad was actually exiled from the cult because he didn't believe. And actually he went as far as to say, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to kill you all because you're ruining my family. And he was threatening the prophet's family. Hmm. And he said, this is like Waco, Texas. This is crazy. Yeah. And, and so because he didn't believe and because he did threaten to kill them, they told my mom, you can't have any more contact with him. He's done. If you do have any contact with him, you're definitely going to be one of the first ones to die in the rapture because, you know, you're leading him to us. So we ended up moving from where he knew us, knew that we lived to about an hour and a half away so that he couldn't find us. Did your mom love him and vice versa? My dad? Mm -hmm. I know she loved him. Did she like him? I'm, 
I think it depended on the day. I think they had, they definitely had their fair share of uh, difficulties in marriage. My mom was actually betrothed to him when she was 17, turning 18, because he was, he came from a wealthy family and she came from a very poor family. And so she was betrothed to him. Um, but they had six kids together and in many ways they had built this, um, they had built this amazing life together. And so for, it wasn't that she followed the prophet because her marriage wasn't perfect because whose marriage is perfect. Um, it was truly because she really believed this prophet. And how many prophets like that are out there? Some of them are from hindsight or with hindsight, they are very obvious and charlatans. Others, they disguise themselves very well. And we have that here in New Zealand. We've got a very large church whose name I do not want to spell out here, but it's not so different as far as I can see. And uh, worldwide, we have got the same thing. People people's values, people's original backgrounds get disrupted due to becoming refugees as it was in, in your parents. There was no longer the support from, from the traditional family system there. It was new values, new country, new life, new stresses, everything new. And it's so easy that in such times people suddenly listen to voices that are absolutely bonkers and mental and dangerous. It's sad. It's really sad. I, I mean, I I think about my family and we started off with a family of eight because there was, I, had, I had four older brothers and a little sister. And when my dad was exiled, soon after that, my brothers were exiled as well because they believed anybody who doesn't believe in what we believe, they cannot be a part of this group. You have to you have to cut them off. And so that is what, where as an adult, I looked back and I was like, that was a cult. Because as a child, I didn't know. As, and even as a teenager, I, I didn't know. But looking back, I'm like, wow, anybody who did not believe in what they believed, they had to be literally cut off, like no communication. I'm very sorry to hear that. I mean, you were seven there. You were a young girl, and looking at you now, you're outgoing. Your 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 the passion that speaks out of your eyes. That's <laughs> it's certainly something that you have cultivated uh, after leaving the cult. But the 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 budding emotions would have been there at a very early stage. So how did that go down with a with a doomsday cult essentially? Uh, the world is now, we're going to die tomorrow. And here were you playing around. Yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time. Um, and I, I can't imagine that. <laughs> well, the big turning point for me is I remember when I got punished for something that I didn't do. And my sister did as well. And my sister was four years younger than me. And I just remember thinking, I've ha I have to get out. And at this point, I hadn't spoken to my dad for years. He didn't know where we were. I wasn't sure if he still lived in Portland, Oregon, but I came up with a plan. And so from there, I started collecting just change that I could find in the house, you know, under couch cushions, things like that. 
and taking a dollar here and there for my mom's purse. And over several months time, I had saved up almost enough money to buy a Greyhound ticket because the Greyhound ticket, and I just remember being about $46. And I, I was shy of that money, but I knew that somebody at the bus stop would give me the extra five or $6 that I needed to go find my dad. At the time I was 14 years old. And, but I never told my sister my plan until that very morning when I had decided I'm leaving. And I looked at her and I said, sis, I, I have to go. I'm going to go find dad, but I'm going to come back for you. I promise. And she just looked at me and I just remember thinking, I can't believe I'm leaving. And I would have taken her with me had I had enough money for both bus tickets. But the only window in the house was that one that was facing the the prophet's house. So I stared out that window until I felt like he wasn't going to be looking out anymore. And I crawled out and I ran and on the way to the bus stop, I knew where a policeman lived. He lived close to our home. And I told him, I said, this is my plan. I'm going to go find my dad, but we've been locked in the house and my sister's still there. And I need you to help her. I need you to get her out. And he looked at me and said, I, I can't let you go. You're a minor. You'd be considered a runaway. He's like, I'm going to get you help. Just crawl back into the window as if we had never spoken and I'm going to send for help tomorrow. And as he promised, the dogs were going crazy the next day. We actually had German shepherds that were that were tied to, they were chained to the porch to keep people away. And the dogs were going crazy. And lo and behold, who shows up? It's police, CPS, and even my junior high principal. Wow. Yeah. And my mom is like, oh my gosh, who's here? And why are they here? You know, and nobody ever really came to see us. And so she goes out there, but because the dogs were barking so loud, I couldn't hear what they were saying because my mom made me stay in the house. And I remember looking at my sister thinking, or I told my sister, I said, sis, we better start packing our bags because they're going to get us out. Hmm. And she's out there talking for over an hour and she comes back in and they leave and nothing happens. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on? And for months, we still lived the very same way. And then finally, when it came time fall in August, when it was time to go back to school, she was finally like, get the heck out. I'm sick of you. Go back to school. Because I had been like itching and moaning, you know, for those two years to get out. And finally I got out and my sister and I got to go back to school. And it was this incredible freedom that I hadn't had for the longest time. And what I, what I know had happened is my mom, like they, my mom bamboozled them to believe that we were being homeschooled, that we were safe. And so they left. Um. 
But then again, here you were now with your sister, no longer under immediate control. Mm -hmm. Did you abscond on day one or what happened? How did you, did you go back? So here you, you tasted that freedom. You saw other children being happy and talking about teenager stuff. And did you go back that day? Well, here's the thing is because I didn't have anywhere else to go. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have no connections on to the outside world to my family. So exactly. where where could I go? I hear you. So I hear. when I turned 17, I remember at school they they sent me home with a FAFSA form. I don't know if you're in you're in New Zealand, so you're not familiar. But what a FAFSA form is is it's a form that you fill out, and basically the government helps you subsidizes the cost for college if you qualify. And of course, we lived in poverty, so we definitely qualified for a subsidy. But I remember when they gave me that form, I thought, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe this! Like, there's a good chance I'm going to graduate from high school." And I could possibly go to college. And that had never dawned on me that I would ever live to this point. So when I brought that FAFSA home to my mom, I begged her to fill it out. And she said, I don't know why you're asking me to do this. This is a waste of my time. You're gonna, I mean, I'm surprised you've lived this, this long. You're not gonna go to college. There's no way. I mean, we're probably gonna die next week. You know, and I'm like, and at that point, I said, you know what? There is no way I'm going to continue to live like this. Even if I were to die tomorrow, I'm going to live my best life today. And I'm going to plan for the very best. So whether or not you fill out this form, I will fill it out myself. I will have to lie. I don't even know what these numbers are, how much money you make. I will have to lie and I'll have to forge this form because I'm going to go to college. Finally, she filled it out very reluctantly. I, I sent in the papers. And I planned for my best life. And at that point, I remember thinking, I'm going to rewrite this story. It's beautiful. I think you have been primed with such a desire there. It's as if you pull a string back and back and back and the tension is, is coming to a maximum and then let go. And that was you the moment you left school. You were just catapulted out there by life, by your desire to live. Yes. And this desire is foreign to many of us nowadays. Yet it was the fate of many generations before us, the generations that have gone through wars, the generations that were in concentration camps, in 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 situations where they felt hopeless and helpless. And then when let loose, they were creating their fortunes and their, their lives in the way they desired to. Wow, what a story, Ming Ming, what a story. Thank you. I'd like to add though, cause that's truly that FAFSA form really did open up a door for me, but I was still very fearful of God so scared. I mean, every time I thought about God, I thought, oh my gosh, he's watching my every move. He's, he, he's waiting for me to make a big enough a mistake so that he can spite me. 
that's how I always felt. And so one day in school, I had become friends with this girl in, in home economics class. I don't know if they, they have something like that, I'm sure, <laughs> um, in New Zealand. But we were just cooking together in home ec class. And the topic of God came up, which I always steered away from because in the cult, they had always told me, this is a secret. You keep it a secret. You don't talk about God. And somehow she brought it up and she called him heavenly father. And I thought, who are you talking about? And she said, God. And I said, what? Why would you call him that? He will smite you. Like, you don't call him heavenly father. Who do you think you are? You know, and, and she just started talking about him like, no, he loves us. And we are his spirit children. We are, and, and we, he knows us by name and he's in the details of our life. And like, she talked about him, like he exists to help us. And that was the exact opposite of who I knew him as. But as I was talking to her and I watched her live her life, she was so kind, so generous in so many ways that I thought, if she really believes that God is out for our good and she can live such a joyous life like she does, maybe I should try. Maybe I should try to get to know who he really is. And that's what I did as I came to know him. I really know with every fiber of my being that his plan for us is the plan of happiness. He's, he's here to help us to get back to him. And I'm so grateful for that because that's why I radiate with so much happiness and joy that I can't help but share what I have. Share this knowledge and this joy with people. And that's why I live the way I do. It's amazing to see you distinguishing God and, and religion so strongly from the cult and the misguided beliefs that were force-fed to you uh, for much of your youth. Uh, I cannot even begin to imagine how you could still believe in, in a better, uh, what's the word, in a God that is loving and caring and is out there for people with the youth that you have lived. Thank you. And I think it's because I recognize that the God that they taught me about, they were teaching me that. That was like the teachings of man. And I never allowed God into my heart because I was scared of him. But when I had made the decision to come to know who he really is and I let him into my heart, I knew he loved me. I knew it without a doubt. And that's how I completely transformed my belief yeah. in who he is. So it's so different when you use your mind and you try to decipher what or who somebody is. And then when you actually use your heart and your soul to make that, to make that distinction. Wow. You're out there now helping people to overcome the fear and 
you are drawing on your own experiences to help others. Is that mainly in a religious sense that you're out there? No. Or no. The religion is something that sustains you and gives you Absolutely. sanity and grounding, but you're, the techniques that you're using to educate and help others are, are what, what kind of style of, of help can you offer? What kind of, of coaching do you do? Thank you. So thank you for asking. And I really do want to talk about the topic of religion and God. And I think for me, I've made the decision that I, he is so much a part of who I am that in order for me to be authentic, I represent myself as a daughter of God. And I respect everybody on the face of the planet, because I do believe that they're my brothers and sisters, even the people that were, that have harmed me in the cult, I have no ill will. That's something that I've been able to overcome, but whether or not you believe in God or whatever higher power, my goal is to guide people to live a life of fulfillment, whatever that means to you, you know, based on your values, your beliefs, and your goals. So the way that I help people today through my coaching is I host workshops. I host in-person workshops, and I'm also creating an online workshop where I help people identify their purpose. So why is it that you're here on earth, right? What makes you tick? What would make you actually wake up in the morning and feel excited to live your life, to become more, to be more? to have more, to give more, right? So, so we, I help them identify their purpose. That's number one. Number two, I help them align their goals with their purpose. Because oftentimes I find that people will create a goal for themselves that doesn't align with their purpose. And so they say, oh, I need more motivation or, you know, why isn't this working for me? Or even maybe they'll actually achieve their goal, Right but then they're still unfulfilled. Mm. So in America, we have a saying, um, the American dream. It's a phrase, right? It's really a common thing around here. And I am grateful for the American dream because I'm so, I'm so grateful to be an American. But what's sad I feel like about the philosophy of chasing the American dream is that people aren't it's not a purpose driven. It's like people are talking about, Hey, I want to buy a bigger house, bigger car, make more money, have more financial abundance. And a lot of people do achieve that here in America, but then at the end of the day, they're still unfulfilled and it's because they're not living their purpose. So that's what I'm, I'm, that's what I'm battling against is let's not hustle. Let's identify what your purpose is, align your goals with your purpose and create a plan to live your purpose. So it's a three-step process. And when they leave my workshop, they have a blueprint that leads them to live a life of fulfillment. And we focus on just the next 12 months. Which is beautiful. Thank Ident you. Identify a vision, turn it into a mission. And yes. figure out steps that get you there rather than, oh, I want to be rich. Oh, mm -hmm. I want to be, have a big house. Yeah, no, that's right. 
uh, the big house and the rich that might come or might not come. But uh, hopefully the, the richness in your heart will come, the passion will come, the fact that you can't stay in bed in the morning because you're so excited about life rather than Oh God, I guess another day that I have to work money, but I get some money. I will make money. And yeah. yeah. What's that money for, right? Yeah. What are you going to use that money for? Mm. That's, That's what's right. important. Now, so true. So true. Oh, hell. Oh, Ming Ming. <laughs> uh, tell us if, if people want to, to work with you, if your story resonates with them, how can they get hold of you? How can they see what you're doing? Yes, thank you for asking. So you can reach me at Ming Ming. It's actually, let me spell it out for you. It's M-I-N-H-M-I-N-H.com. And you can find me there and get my workshop. And also I have a free PDF I'd love to give you. Mm -hmm. It is called the Fear Setting PDF. And basically it's where you write down your, your fears, how you can potentially prevent it. And what's the absolute worst thing that could happen to you? <laughs> yeah. And I think truly that is what helps people yeah. to live fully, right? Absolutely. When I escaped my cult life, I realized that there were definite risks that I was taking. But I identified how I could potentially prevent it. And if the very worst thing were to happen, could I live with that? Hmm. And I decided I could. So I escaped that life. And... Um, I also have another PDF. It's called um, Discover Your Purpose. And this is where I am so passionate about this because I feel like so many people are living their life not actually being able to even write down what it is that they are existing for, right? So there's five questions that will help you identify mm -hmm. your purpose. And you could potentially do it in five minutes or less. So you can go to mingming.com forward slash purpose for that. And then the fear setting workshop or PDF is mingming.com forward slash fear setting. Brilliant. And you guys, it will be down there. Just, you don't need to, to remember it all or wind back. It's just look into the description of the video and of the YouTube channel and uh, it will be all there. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's right. Cool. Ming Ming, this was such a beautiful, beautiful uh, interview. It was wonderful. I really, really, really enjoyed that. It was an absolute honor to have you on my show. And you are doing just a fantastic job out there. So please do not stop. Any last parting words for my guests or for, my, for, the, yeah. for our listeners, shall I say, for our viewers? My message to the world is that no matter who you are or where you come from, you can live a life of fulfillment. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was an absolute honor. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. Bye. <laughs>